You're listening to the Climbing Vines podcast, a series exploring the experiences of Black women on the University of Pennsylvania's campus. Welcome to the Climbing Vines podcast. My name is Arielle Winfield, and I'm going to be your host. Today, we have our founder, Janae Sylvester, here to give us a little bit of background about what Climbing Vines is and how we came to choose our first topic. Thanks, Arielle. I'm really excited to be here and want to extend a huge thanks to our listeners for tuning in to our first episode. As Arielle mentioned, my name is Janae Sylvester, and I'm the founder of the Climbing Vines podcast and the Climbing Vines collection of short stories. Before I explain a little about the projects, let me tell you a little bit about myself. I am currently a marketing and communications professional based in the New York City area, but I grew up in a little New England town in Connecticut. Penn was my dream school. I applied early decision and I was so excited when I got in and knew I would be spending the next four years there. In 2012, I graduated from Penn with a PPE degree, so that's philosophy, politics, economics. Shout out to all the PPE majors um, if you're listening. Um, But overall, I am so thankful for my time at Penn. I learned so much while I was there, um, had so many different new experiences, such as being a part of a substantially sized black community. had a number of highs and certainly a number of lows, but all in all, I wouldn't change anything about my experience and my time at Penn. During that experience, I had the opportunity to be a part of a revival of a discussion group for black undergraduate women. And it was really impactful for us during my last two years on campus. So once I graduated and, you know, had to take on all of my adulting and responsibilities, my mind continued to wander back to um, some questions that I had been left with once I graduated. How can we build on the discussion group? How can we continue to tell the stories of black women who are currently at Penn or have attended Penn in the past? And what are some ways to bring those groups together? And so all of that exploration phase um, led to Climbing Vines. It started out with a printed collection of short stories. So over the course of two years, we collected 17 narratives written by current students at the time and alum about their real experiences while undergraduates at Penn. Fast forward five years and here we are today. And so to celebrate the continuation of this project, we will be re-releasing the collection of short stories with new stories. And we also decided to produce this limited series podcast. So with this podcast, we really wanted to explore some topics that we didn't get a chance to fully address in the collection. Although with today's episode, we are starting out with a somewhat heavy topic, I thought it was super important to address and to address it um, up front. Of course, we hope you listen to the rest of the episodes, but if you only hear one, we wanted it to be this one. And really for current students who are at Penn or um, just uh, currently attending college, we want you to be able to walk away with some food for thought and some new resources that may be available to you and, and may help you along your journey and maintaining your mental health while in college. So again, so thankful to be here. Here we are. And let's get this conversation going. Here we are. I'm super excited to be here. This today's topic is something that is personally extremely important to me and 
um, I've had to navigate through the years. Um, and I graduated, so this is Arielle, I graduated from uh, Penn in 2017. I studied cognitive science with a concentration in neuroscience and a minor in consumer psychology. And um, since graduating, I worked at Morgan Stanley for a couple of years, and now I'm doing entrepreneurship full time. But anxiety and depression are two um, things that are not only prevalent in my life, but prevalent in a lot of people I know's lives, as well as a lot of people in the world, truly. So today we have two guests with us. We have Amanda Parks and Elisa Foster here to discuss this topic. So Elisa, if you could kick us off and give us a little bit of background about yourself and anything else you'd like to share. Sure, thank you so much for inviting me to participate in this conversation. Um, I am an associate director at Penn Women's Center, which is one of the six cultural resource centers here on campus. A lot of my work concentrates on advising our student groups, mentoring students, um, collaborating with our campus partners to promote gender equity. Despite the name Penn Women's Center, our mission really is gender equity. So regardless of however you identify, we're here uh, for all of our students and staff and faculty to be a resource. Uh, as a black staff person on the administrative side of things, this is definitely something that is personally um, very important to me. I went to a predominantly white university when I was a college student. So I understand some of the challenges that students are facing, some of the challenges our alumni are facing. So I'm really glad that we have outlets like this one to be able to share our stories and share resources because it's really hard to find that information, especially at a university as large as this one. There are so many resources and so many layers and levels to things. It's really important to uh, have places where you can come for information from people who really have your best interests at heart. Absolutely. And Amanda, would you be able to share a little bit about your background as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I graduated from the University of Pennsylvania in 2013. Uh, I currently am a clinical psychology doctoral student at Virginia Commonwealth University. Um, <clears throat> I study and research parenting in the black community, uh, especially parenting children with ADHD, any behavioral disorders, uh, as well as uh, an interest I've developed more recently is making sure that our therapy and treatment generally assessment is culturally relevant incompetent uh, and also just making sure that we uh, increase mental health utilization in the black community uh, and so before I came to VCU I was working at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia for three years uh, doing research as well in the schools in the communities around violence prevention and uh, bullying and aggression prevention yeah so mental health is not just something that I do as a career, but also my passion and my purpose. And so I was really excited to be invited here and hopefully I can share resources. My story can help inspire others 
to receive their own therapy services or just be able to talk about mental health without feeling stigmatized. Nice. So to jump right into this this discussion, um, I'll start with a little bit of background about my experience um, at Penn and dealing with mental health. So I, I've always, as long as I can remember, to be honest, have dealt with anxiety and depression issues um, for different reasons throughout my life. But um, I know that it was a struggle for me, for sure. And I know that I felt very alone because I, I, I didn't know who else was dealing with the same issues. I didn't know if people were. I didn't know what this meant, what it was supposed to look like, what I was, how I was supposed to be handling myself. And then as I got older um, and kind of tried to figure out how to navigate this um, whole mental health issue, um, I definitely learned a lot about myself. But then I got to college and started realizing that, wow, there are a lot of people out here that seem to be dealing with the same issues even when they say something different. Um, and being at a place like Penn and always having to function on such a high level constantly, especially after coming from such a, a, a rigorous high school as well, um, I was used to that, but it was still a new challenge for me. It was a new experience. It was a new city. I'm from LA and Penn is in Philly. Um, I had never lived on the you know, East Coast. I had never lived in this type of weather. There were so many changes. And coming to Penn and seeing, you know, people almost compete to see how, like, bad they have it. You know what I mean? Like, people will be like, oh, well, I only got two hours of sleep last night, or I only did this. And it's like, that is not something we should be uh, <laughs> celebrating or, like, competing with each other on. But, you know, people say those things or say that they're okay, and then on the inside, they're struggling or, you know, people go and commit suicide. Like, uh, multiple people at, at Penn that I knew personally uh, took their lives, and that's really when it started hitting me, like, how big of an issue this is. Um, and I think it's really important to include people like faculty and um, people that do this as a profession in the conversation so that we can start figuring out how to come to a solution um, or not even just come to a solution because everybody's experiences are different, but um, find ways that people can cope more readily and, and be able to navigate their lives and the world um, without feeling like they, I don't know, like they can't you know, go on each day. So, Elisa, would you be able to provide a little bit of background for our listeners about the anxiety and depression rates on college campuses today? Sure. There is a lot of data on this topic, and it's a really complicated, kind of multi-layered issue depending on what you're looking at. Um, I can say with confidence that the number of students across the board who are seeking mental health resources on college campuses has increased a lot over the past several years, and it continues to increase every year. And that is definitely reflected in what we're seeing here at Penn. Um, the national numbers can be different depending on what 
survey or data that you're looking at, but I know that, for instance, a couple of years ago at Penn, in one year, we had about 4,000 students visit CAPS for individual counseling. And that, I think that says a lot about, about what the state is. And that number is about double of what we saw a few years prior. So um, there's definitely a growing need for services on campus. And I'm not sure if it is because there is a greater need of students experiencing these issues or if it's the stigma attached to seeking help that is being alleviated in some way and students are feeling more comfortable coming to different resources on campus to seek help I think is a little bit of both probably Uh, but I think definitely that stigma around seeking resources is definitely contributing to the way that college students today are um, seeking help and being diagnosed with Um, mental disorders or conditions. Got you. So Elisa and Amanda, both of you guys, what was your experience like dealing with your mental health or managing your mental health while in college? Um, I can speak to that first. I would say I didn't. (laughs) Um, I think like you said, Anxiety is something I think I've been struggling with for most of my young adult, probably even teenage life. But because I wasn't knowledgeable about the symptoms, I just thought that was typical. You know, like just worrying about things every single day, so much that I'm not sleeping or um, uh, having like somatic symptoms, which we know that black women in particular experience more than other women. So for example, you know, stomach aches, headaches, back pain, these are all symptoms that black women in particular experience when they're depressed and when they're anxious. And we tend to write that off as, you know, just, I don't know, tired or, you know, you have some kind of health concern, but it's actually a mental health symptom. So for me personally, I think that imposter syndrome was real at Penn. You know, you were the most celebrated or smartest student in high school. I graduated second in my class, and then I go to Penn, and I'm like a small fish in a big pond. And you start feeling like, why am I here? Did I make the wrong decision? I'm not appeasing my parents, I'm not doing well. Uh, do I even know what I want to do? And, you know, like you said, Ariel, most people are experiencing these things, but because Penn is so competitive, no one talks about that. Uh, and I think for me, I went to CAPS, I think once my sophomore year, I was just very anxious. I was having panic attacks, which I have never even talked to my friends about, but the wait list was so long that I just didn't go back. I think it was three months at that point and so I just started having to deal with it uh and fortunately I I do think something that Penn does well is that we have a lot of black students or you know (laughs) (laughs) no I don't want to say a lot (laughs) but but even talking to some of my friends here at VCU we have much higher percentage of black students than other PWIs and so I felt like a community Mm -hmm. uh but definitely this anxiety was just something I normalized, mm-hmm. like just something you experience. Right. So yeah. 
I think a lot of people do the same thing. And at Penn, I don't think it's the only place where people uh, are so used to going, going, going and working at such a heart or, you know, such a high level that, you know, they don't talk about stuff. I think that has, uh, that's something that's really prevalent in the whole of society. And um, it's funny, actually, because I, I literally right before this just came from therapy and um, like all my four years at Penn, I went to CAPS and luckily, um, luckily those resources are increasing at Penn because I, I never had to deal with a three month wait list for CAPS, thank God. Um, but yeah, I literally just came from therapy just now and I was talking to her about how I am frustrated at myself for like constantly feeling like I'm running five to 10 minutes late to everything. And, and that has to, like, I'm constantly late, guys. It's actually really bad. But, um, and I was frustrated over that because I'm like, I don't want to be this person and I don't want to, you know, people to look at me a certain way because I'm, I don't want them to think I'm late or lazy or whatever it is. But um, the conclusion I came to was just, I know that that has to do with uh, anxiety issues and not leaving myself enough time in order to get things done. I always operate under a state of, anxiety and pressure and and stress and my therapist she was saying um often people resort to things that feel comfortable for them regardless of whether they're good for you or not and for me i am so comfortable in being anxious or comfortable in being stressed that i almost force myself into those situations when i don't have to be and I, I feel like that's, I wanted to share that because I know a lot of people may be dealing with the same thing, whether it's the exact same situation as me or whether they're just um, pushing themselves into situations that are not always good for them, but cause them anxiety um, because that's what they're used to or cause them depression because that's what they're used to. And I think adding that layer of being a black woman and being at Penn, Again, I think that, of course, the imposter syndrome um, was something that I felt like, am I supposed to be here? Um, Again, I mentioned I was a PPE major. And a lot of the times I would be in a whole, um, what's it called, like a lecture hall of like 200 people, and it would be me and one other black guy. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. being the only one and because I was so involved and invested in the black community. So I wasn't in one of the more predominantly white um, fraternities or sororities. And so most of my friends were black. Um, That was my safe space. That's where I felt comfortable. And so going into those classrooms where I'm by myself, I don't have any friends, um, was uncomfortable. It was nerve wracking. And I think it led to added stress because um, I felt like a lot of my peers were doing work in a study group. So it'd be four of them. And I'm doing the work of four people by myself. Um, and so that caused me a lot of stress my, fr- my freshman year, um, my sophomore year, because the sophomore slump is real, I feel like for anybody, <laughs> um, for there may be some lucky folks that didn't have to go through that, but it's real. And then there's just like added layers when, um, again, just taking into account um, my experiences within the black community and um, and being a woman and all in those different things. So 
um, it, it took a while for me to adjust what I was doing academically and realizing like, okay, I have to I have to get myself together. I have to uh, make some new friends. Like, okay, I see you're over here by yourself. Let's get together. Um, but, you know, I think that stress my freshman and sophomore year traveled with me um, throughout my whole time at Penn. And of course, that's just the academic focus, but there's, you know, the, the social scene and all of those other elements that, um, also are going to impact your mental health. So um, anyway, I just wanted to add that anecdote. Yeah, no, that's a great addition. Um, Elisa, would you be able to ex uh, give us a little bit of background about your experience dealing or managing your mental health while you were in college? Sure, well, I went to college down the street at Villanova. So from nice. my perspective, Penn has lots of black people um, <laughs> I got here and I was like wow there's so many black people like I used to come down on the R5 into the city just to you know be around a more diverse community so um, and um, I'll also say that I graduated 15 years ago and Back then, um, we didn't talk about mental health, really. It wasn't really a conversation. Uh, during orientation, there weren't any, at least from what I remember, there really weren't presentations on where you could go. I know that you know in our health center, I believe there was a psychologist there, so if you needed help, you had to kind of navigate the student health system, but we didn't at that time have an independent counseling center. And I know the university has one now, and I know that's a reflection of the times that we're in and the fact that nowadays students are more vocal and they're um, needing support and I think administrators across the board are recognizing that students need that support and they don't need to hide it in you know another office or um, in the back of the brochure mm -hmm. so um, from my perspective you know I definitely see it getting better I know um, when I was in college uh, my mother dealt with mental health um, issues and that affected her physical health as Amanda was referencing a little while ago. Uh, in black women we see things like high blood pressure, diabetes, and those sorts of things um, affecting our bodies. So that's something that I was dealing with as a student, um, dealing with you know internalizing the things that my mother was going through. So, and I didn't really have many people to talk to. I mean, fortunately, I have a few family members I'm very close to, and I was able to find a really supportive group of friends at Villanova, but um, it was definitely really hard, and I would have been in a much better place if I had had something like CAPS, even if I had to wait weeks to see somebody, it would have been something that was a resource. So I do appreciate the fact that, you know, a decade and a half later, we're starting to see progress. Right, definitely. Um, being a staff member on Penn's campus, <laughs> have you personally seen uh, the way that uh, anxiety and depression or other mental health issues have affected black women specifically on campus? Yes, um, 
I, you know, I've had the privilege of being able to uh, collaborate with many of our black students, our black women on campus who, uh, who host events, who do programming, groups like Sister Sister, uh, students who are members of um, PAGE, Penn Association of Gender Equity, who want to really focus and center stories from women of color and center the experience of women of color. So um, that's definitely something that the students want our collaboration with. Um, I'll say that I am always very grateful when I come downstairs to the living room and I see a black woman taking a nap on the couch because that means she's getting the rest that she needs someone recognized. I need to take a nap in between my classes. And it's really little things like that that make a big difference in our day with Definitely. you know whatever we're going through, whether it be academic or personal or whatever it is, it's really important to take those steps. So um, I do see students seeking out the self-care a lot more, mm -hmm. and self-care has become sort of a buzz word right. that can mean <laughs> many thing. different things, but I think the intention behind it is good that people actually want to take care of themselves and they're seeking resources and experts on campus that can give them that kind of advice. Absolutely. And quickly about self-care specifically, I am a big proponent of self-care. Um, but one thing is I feel like often people think that self-care has to be these big, large acts of, of, I don't know, taking care of yourself, such as like going and booking a massage or going on a big <laughs> vacation or like, I don't know, something like that. But often people overlook the little things that uh, can help manage your your mental health and your sanity. Like if you want to take a bath, long, luxurious bath one night, like that's a form of self-care or getting a few extra minutes of sleep in the morning. That is a form of self-care. Um, so just or the, saying no or saying no yes. to things yes because often I feel like especially black women mm -hmm. we say yes to everything mm -hmm. and we take so much on our plates mm -hmm. and think that we're super women and we are in a way but we're not in another way like we are still human and we have to make sure that we remember that and do the little things that um, allow us to keep going each day can I actually ask a question Elisa, about um, Penn's Women's Center, I thought it was interesting that you mentioned um, the students sleeping on the couch. And uh -huh. I guess when I was at Penn, maybe I wasn't aware, um, but I know that Maku, which is one of the um, African-American cult, were really, well, not, it is one of the, we have a few. <laughs> Let me not say it's one, um, but uh, one of the few um, cultural resources for um, African-American students. And I know that that has always been deemed as kind of a safe space and a lot of students hang out there. Um, but I guess what you were saying kind of implies that Penn's Women's Center is also um, a similar space and that students are kind of welcome to go there and interact with um, staff members. Um, so that's my kind of my question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's a really good question. I know um, when we see the name woman in something or women in the title of something. As black women, it's hard to determine whether or not that means us too. 
Yeah. And I've definitely I personally experienced that in 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 my life, you know, seeing something that was a feminist cause or a woman's space and then coming into it and saying, "Oh, this isn't quite <laughs> for me." <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's something that we've been working really hard at at the Women's Center. Um, actually, when we uh, selected our director, Sri Slaud Hammond, who started this past January, uh, that meant that all of our staff members are actually women of color now, all four of us, wow. all the full-time staff members. So I think that um, shows just, you know, on the face, like, you, you know, we're really invested in making sure that students of color, particularly women and femmes of color, um, know that this really is a space for them. And we've been trying really hard to make sure that we communicate that in a way that respects the fact that students might still feel comfortable going to Maku instead, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. uh, we love Maku. They're our friends, our partners. Um, but we do want to make sure that they know this is a space for them too. And um, yeah, so we've we've been trying really hard to make sure that everyone knows that you know a lot of our work really is intersectional. Our other associate mm -hmm. director Sanjana and I have actually started um, doing workshops and some presentations to other staff members across campus around intersectional feminism and what that really means and how we can really be inclusive spaces on campus. Nice. I think it's an, super important uh, to make sure that all the spaces on campus um, are as intersectional and diverse as possible so that uh, we can reach as many people that need the help as we can. Um, Elisa, do you know of any other resources on Penn's campus that may be helpful to any students listening uh, that could help with mental health or whatever? other spaces uh, could make students feel comfortable in? Mm -hmm. um, well, in terms of groups, there is um, some things that the university on a broader level are doing, initiatives that they're doing. They actually just hired the first chief wellness officer on campus oh, wow. last year. And it is his job, Benoit Dubé, it's his job to make sure that wellness is a priority across campus. So um, campus health, student health caps, um, pen violence prevention, and several other departments are all now under that wellness umbrella. So all of those resources in a way are centralized, which makes it really um, great because as you know, I mentioned before, it's a really big place and it's really hard to navigate some of the resources. So that's just one of the ways that the university is trying to streamline um, those resources and making sure that students know that wellness is a priority. So that's one thing that's, it's not a space, but it's sort of a, a template, if you will, right. as a way that we're addressing um, the need for, for wellness initiatives. I will also say that we also just hired um, the, a director for a new Penn First Plus initiative, which is for first-gen low-income students. And it's really, that's another initiative that is, um, that's seeking to centralize a lot of the resources for students who need support with financial aid. Maybe you know they're facing some sort of food insecurity. Maybe they're facing some sort of issue with their family and they need resources. Um, so. That's another way that the university is kind of broadening um, 
the way we think about these issues and making sure that we have easier access to resources. And that access to resources really does impact your mental health because you know if you're if you're facing a crisis, the last thing you want to do is go online and sort through a directory of you know a bunch of names and departments that you don't even know what they mean and trying to right. figure that all that out. Um, I'll also say that in terms of having confidential spaces on campus. The Women's Center is one of nine confidential resources on campus, which is a lot for universities. Most universities, it's pretty much, you know, the counseling center and the health center that are confidential. But it's really great that we have different spaces here on campus. So if there's someone you feel comfortable talking to, for instance, at the Women's Center or maybe at the LGBT Center, you can come to them first and they can guide you to whatever other resources you might need. You don't have to seek them yourself. Right. That's amazing, honestly, because I used to complain to my friends all the time and still do sometimes about how uh, there's a lack of resources on campus. But honestly, as I hear more and more about the things that Penn has available, I'm like, wow, so Penn really is doing things to try and help and try and make strides, not only in the mental health space, but all the different you know, spaces that there are things lacking. And I think that we just need to do a better job at advertising those things and making the students aware that they exist. Because to know that nine different confidential spaces. That's unbelievable, mm-hmm. truly. But so many students don't even know that they're there. Exactly. So yeah, if we could just do something to increase the awareness, I think that would help greatly. And I, I love that there's a new chief wellness officer. I've never heard of anything like that. <laughs> and it makes me so happy to hear that there's someone dedicated to making sure that the wellness of the students um, there is top-notch. So I love that. I'm so glad to hear. I think it's amazing to see um, the leaps and bounds that have been made even since I was there. So Amanda and I were at Penn at the same time, but I was a year ahead of her. And um, I will say I experienced the same thing to where I'm like, okay, maybe I'm going to try to get some support and try to go to CAPS. And it was the same thing of like, three months or let alone, you know, I wanted to speak to another black woman. (laughs) I mean, it was like, you couldn't even, (laughs) you know, the calendar wasn't even open, period. So, um, but that being said, one thing I wanted to also touch on was um, when I went through a trauma during my senior year, um, and it was the same kind of thing of like, I didn't even know where to start. I didn't know who to go to. I didn't know how to seek help. Um, And I think it's great having uh, black faculty on campus um, and particularly, well, I won't say her name, um, but there was a black faculty member and my friends were like, you know, reach out to her. She should be able to help. And, um, And so I think she might not have been on campus or something at the time, but she pointed me in the direction of Penn's Women's Center. And so I can uh, testify that I was able to go there. I was able to um, confidentially kind of share what what my experiences were um, and they helped me navigate the next step. Um, for my mental and physical wellness. So um, I'm forever grateful. And, and also I will add, um, 
at the time it was a, a black woman who was able to speak with me and it made me a million times more comfortable um, talking through that experience. I don't want to get emotional, but um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really thankful for the Women's Center and I'm thankful that there are now even more resources um, available to the students. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that because often people are afraid to share their experiences or their stories, but I think sharing is what helps people feel like they're not alone in the situation. Absolutely. And because loneliness, honestly, to me, feels like the most damaging part of dealing with mental health issues um, because you get stuck in your head and continue in a, like a vicious cycle almost where you are talking yourself down until you get to the lowest point and then often, or not often, I don't want to say, but a lot of times people end up getting to such a dark place that they end up taking their lives and um, having lost people in my life that way. Uh, it's really sparked something inside of me to really want to start sharing more and um, making sure people don't feel that way ever again. Um, well, one thing, one thing that I wanted to add is actually what you're speaking to. There is scientific evidence behind that. So, in terms of people uh, completing suicide, uh, the biggest predictors of that are feeling like you're a burden. Yes. And not feeling like you belong. So loneliness. So we see that people who are depressed and start isolating themselves because they feel like they're a burden to those around them, even though usually they aren't but it's perceived burdensomeness, plus not feeling like you belong, those two things actually, uh, like theoretically lead to someone completing or like trying to commit suicide. So I think it's called like the interpersonal theory of uh, suicide or something like that. But so it's actually, there's scientific evidence behind what you're saying. And so that's a big risk factor with any of my clients. If people start saying that they feel like a burden or they feel lonely, those are, you know, good signs for us to check in with our friends, family, colleagues, because that means that they could potentially have feelings of wanting to kill themselves or not wanting to be here anymore, so. Absolutely, and that's another thing, the topic of suicide that people are so scared of talking about, like death and especially when someone is taking their own life, it's a hard topic to deal with and people something that people don't like to even think about, but when it gets to a point where we have people in society that are that feel like there's no other way out and they have no choice but to take their own life for the sake of others or for their own um, happiness, I guess, that's just so sad to me. It's so sad. And a lot of people out here that are still living um, deal with thoughts of suicide and those alone are scary and isolating and and it's hard to manage those things. So talking about how we can, like what are the signs of someone possibly, you know, getting to the point where they may do that or talking about ways to prevent that or talking about all the different things that surround suicide is important. Um, so thank you, Amanda, for sharing, for sharing that scientific evidence and background. <laughs> um, but as a follow-up question, I wanted to ask you, what led to your interest in pursuing a psych major at Penn? And did that influence the lens with which you viewed or managed your own mental health or your, or your peers' mental health? I actually, 
actually, both of my parents are mental health professionals. Mm. So my mother is a licensed uh, clinical social worker, and my father works like at different nonprofits, like substance use, a lot of um, like more exact, I guess, management of nonprofits that focus on mental health promotion. So, I. It's funny that I feel like I've turned into my parents, but that's another thing. But really what spurred my interest in psychology was I was a part of a group called Community School Student Partnerships at Penn. And so we went into uh, different schools in West and Southwest Philadelphia and did more mentoring uh, and more like academic um, achievement things. However, what I started recognizing was that every these children's mental, emotional, and social health was impacting their academics. And so for me, I was like, I'm much more interested in trying to alleviate their mental health concerns, and then someone else can be their teacher and educator. I mean, I tried teaching mm-hmm. in the summertime, and I just couldn't. <laughs> so I was like, so I, like, I want to focus on mental health. Um, and so I started pursuing psychology instead of urban studies and urban education. Uh, so that's kind of what spurred my interest, is being around black children and their families probably three days a week, uh, and just seeing the lack of access to mental health care and how that was uh, impacting their lives. Um, so that was what kind of led for me wanting to be a psychology major. And for the second part of the question, unfortunately, I don't know if that helped me deal with my own mental health because honestly I've been a therapist now for three years and I just started going to my own therapist in March and so I think that even though this is my purpose and my passion there was still so much stigma within myself mm. in seeking help for my own mental health concerns or just feeling like I had it under control you know and so <laughs> and so I think that um, these are issues that we talk about a lot my friend group now, but in college, I really feel like I was depressed and didn't even recognize it. And so even though I was studying it every day, abnormal psychology, you know, um, social psych, different things like that, I wasn't applying it to myself because ultimately I do think, at least back then, 2009, 2013, the culture of Penn was so competitive that I... Yeah, I wasn't helping myself. And so I think that uh, now I'm taking care of my mental health. And, like, I appreciate you talking, Ariel, about going to a therapist because it's one of my goals that every black person yes. be able to go to therapy, even if you aren't severely depressed right. or severely anxious or suffer some, some trauma. I mean, quite frankly, we experience racial discrimination every single day and that's leading to us experiencing like more low and moderate levels of depression that's leading to us aging more quickly than other uh, groups and dying earlier. So mm-hmm. I really think that the more we talk about our experiences in therapy is how we can promote it. And I think that, um, oh, there was one more point I said, uh, I-, I go to a black therapist. It's difficult though. There's not many of us out there. And so... It's, it's hard to get one, but I do think that that, to me, is the number one way of self-care. Like, the whole self-care tagline for me, I would say therapy mm-hmm. yeah. is number one. 
now that is ignoring uh, people's access to getting therapy, like and whether it's income, uh, not having a car, uh, the stigma, and also how the medical community has oppressed black people for years such that you don't trust your provider. Yeah. So obviously there are so many things preventing us from going to therapy. But at this point, most of not all of my close friends go to therapy and I can see a difference in all of our lives. And I just will always promote therapy. So I really appreciate you even talking about your therapy experience, Ariel, because that's how we start, you yeah. know, eradicating or at least alleviating mental health concerns in our community is just talking about uh, therapy and mental health. So Absolutely. See, even therapists need therapy, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> we need it. We <laughs> all do. <laughs> <laughs> well not more but just saying yeah it's, it's difficult um it's compassion fatigue is real and I think that it's hard for me to be an effective therapist to children and, and teens when my cup is I guess over full what's the word I mean over when it's like half yeah. full or yeah full. just when I'm burnt out exactly um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly <laughs> Um, I know I'm not the host, but I just <laughs> wanted to ask um, either either of you um, can speak a little bit to any pressures, additional pressures that you felt um, within being a part of the black community um, and whether it was navigating dating or um just maybe certain things, or at least I'll I'll just start by saying, um, I think I put a lot of pressure on myself because in the black community, I always felt like I had to act like I have everything together. And even if it's at a party where you know you're having fun with your friends, I felt like it still had to be very controlled fun. <laughs> you know, you have to still look cute, and there's always it's all about the appearances. And um, yeah, I think Penn, I. It's interesting because at Penn, I met some of my closest, most like loving like people in my life, mm. and also the most judgmental, uh, mean people as well. I mean, it's college, but I do think in the black community, because we were so tightly knit, mm -hmm. it was if you like you said, if you go to a party and dance, all of a sudden you're you're being gossiped about mm. the next day, or or people are saying things about you that aren't even true because they saw you in this party for an hour mm -hmm. and now all of a sudden your reputation is ruined. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely think that at least my freshman, sophomore years, I experienced that in feeling like, you know, I couldn't be myself because ultimately somebody was going to judge me and then that might leak over into my professional uh, life or academic life. Mm -hmm. um, but it's hard because even though I've had some negative experiences, I feel like ultimately my experience at Penn was positive. Like I, there were, because there were so many black people, we, maybe you don't like a few black people, but then you have five more people that you're friends with versus like at other schools, there might only be a few. Yeah. So if you don't get along, then it is what it is. So I definitely think that as I got older at Penn, I stopped caring, but freshman <laughs> year was like, uh-oh. You know, I'm at this party. Do I dance or not dance? Because if I dance, 
then tomorrow somebody might be like, oh, Amanda, you know, whatever. <laughs> so, so yeah, I definitely experienced, I feel like added pressure because it's like a microcosm, like being in black pen and it feels like all eyes are on you. Um, but I also feel like it was one of the most supportive groups as well that I was a part of. So, yeah. Yeah. I would, I would add to that as, you know, a black staff person here on campus, um, I work with some brilliant students <laughs> who uh, know a lot and are able to articulate the things that they're passionate about very, very well. And um, here and in other places, you know, I've felt that pressure to to feel like I have to know everything there is to know about feminism, everything there is to know about black feminism, about <laughs> the history of the black community and be able to speak to all of these things. Um, but I've realized that uh, the students are very gracious in what you offer to them. So figuring out ways to take that pressure off of myself because I realized that I was, you know, pressuring myself to be an expert in all these areas, <laughs> which, you know, that's pretty much impossible. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, I would say, you know, from that perspective, it's been really interesting to, to manage that, those kinds of pressures as well. And I'm sure many of our students, students are facing that pressure as well to feel like they have to know everything about a particular topic. I've been challenging myself more and more to figure out how I'm playing into oppression and white supremacy and I think one of the things is feeling like I have to be excellent all the time and actually not saying be being mediocre but being average is fine and if anything it's how you kind of fight the system because no I don't have to be the best all the time I can have days that I'm average or I can have days that I don't really feel like putting in 100% I want to put in 60% and that's good enough but I think that being at Penn, we are taught this like perfectionism. We know everything. Um, I have to stay up all night just to be perfect. And it really leaks into your professional life too. And it causes you not to have boundaries. So I'm speaking to myself. Not to have boundaries and to question your intelligence at the end of the day uh, and cause you to be anxious and then depressed. And so I've been trying to tell myself that Amanda you don't have to give 100% all the time. You can give whatever you feel like giving and just trying your best. And that doesn't make you any less of a, like a person, of a human, or any less intelligent. And I think the pressure we put on ourselves as black women is what's causing us to be so burnt out. But really, it's not just us. It's the system you know, that we are a part of. And I think challenging it every day is being like, you know what? I'm just going to be 50% today, and that's fine. But it's easier said than done, and I still have not perfected at all, but I'm trying. Right. I think that sentiment stems a lot from what Black people are taught as kids, where mm. your parents always tell you you have to be twice as good just to get half as much as your white counterparts. And yes, that is true, but that also fosters this sense of I need to be perfect all the time, and I have to be running on a thousand just to get anywhere and yes it's good to have drive and passion and be you know want to be successful at whatever you're doing but it's a it this 
damaging cycle that we throw ourselves into and refuse to get out of is, like I said, very damaging. And we just have to be able to manage our own expectations of ourselves. And because those things that our parents teach us as black kids become our inner voices. Mm -hmm. And as we get older, we continue to tell ourselves these things and then it leads to these uh, you know, bad habits or habits that cause adverse you know, mental health issues. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely something that I've dealt with personally and I think that we just need to remind ourselves that it is okay if we don't run on a thousand every single day. Mm -hmm. It is okay, like Amanda said, if we just feel like being average today. <laughs> that is totally fine. That doesn't make you an average person. That doesn't make you less than anybody else. Mm -hmm. You're just a human and you need to not be on a thousand all the time. You know, we have to take care of ourselves. All right. So as a last question, Elisa, um, what would you say would be a great future state in terms of wellness and mental health at Penn. I know we have our C CWO that just started, but um, are there any things that you can foresee at, would be helpful for mental health on, at, on Penn's campus? Sure. I see um, the future really is in the collaboration among all of our different student groups and different offices. I think it's really important for us to have, you know, spaces that, you know, align with our identity, but I also think it's important for us to all be communicating across cultures and across languages and across backgrounds. And so I really, I'm excited to see how we shape those kinds of collaborations. Uh, for instance, I've seen the clinicians at CAPS, especially the clinicians of color that they have, um, interacting more with student groups and speaking on panels and hosting support groups and hosting groups that are specific to different identities, different sexualities, different um, ethnicities. And so I really feel like seeing the the people who do the kind of work that I do behind the scenes, you know, out there talking with students, interacting with students, interacting with our colleagues, interacting with faculty and making sure that our faculty um, have the language and support and resources they need to support our students in the classroom as well. I think that's really important. I think it's important to make sure that our faculty and staff have the resources they need to, um, to thrive here as employees, to feel supported, to make sure that their families and their lives are supported as well, because that way we can give the best of ourselves to the students. So uh, that's what I'm really excited to see about the future at Penn, and I think we're going in that direction. The one thing that I'll add is, if I was to speak to the students and the future for Penn students, is that obviously we all went to Penn because we excel academically. However, that's one part of you as a person. And if there's one thing that I hope for the future Penn students is that we tap into our wholeness and our humanity. And a big part of that outside of academics is your mental, emotional, and physical health. And so I think with the resources that Elisa spoke to, hopefully students will feel that by prioritizing their mental, physical, and emotional health, 
that they aren't going to fall behind in the academic uh, space. But it's easier said than done. Um, and a great way to do that is by seeking out those therapy services and um, talking to others about your mental health. And so I know that there are resources at Penn for Penn students, but if you're looking for therapists of color, there's a good website, therapyforblackgirls.com, that provides you with therapists within like a five to 20 mile radius, as well as the Open Path Collective, which discusses how to receive mental health services that are uh, more affordable. And so, yeah, I just hope for all Penn students that you realize that your worth is never determined by the grades that you're getting or the accolades that you're receiving. And it's really about um, just the energy you're putting out into the world and how you're providing community to yourself and to others. And so prioritizing your mental and emotional health will lead to you being a fuller person and to making even greater change in your community. And so hopefully people can internalize that because I don't think I did when I was at Penn and it's important. Absolutely. I think that was an amazing point to end on. I want to say thank you to Elisa and Amanda for being here today. Thank you so much for providing your insight and your background and your experiences. Thank you to Janae for being a part of this first conversation. And thank you to our listeners for for joining us today. And I hope that you guys join us for the rest of this series. We have four more episodes coming. They are all about amazing, wonderful topics. So please tune in and we can't wait to see you on the next episode. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Climbing Vines podcast. Please check back on our website, cvines.org for more information about the project.